Welcome to the Auxiliary Chamber, the International Law Podcast. Welcome back everyone to the Auxiliary Chamber. Today we'll be starting a two-episode series on the intersection between international criminal law and international environmental law, specifically the crime of ecocide. Today's episode will be focusing on part one, what is ecocide? To do this, I have our wonderful guest and co-host with me, Noah van der Merche. Together, we will host a discussion with international law and international criminal law professor, Kevin John Heller, talking about his views on ecocide and specifically the newest publicized definition by the independent expert panel. Before we delve into that discussion, however, Noah and I will together spend the first part of the podcast discussing what the crime of ecocide actually is, its drafting history, and Noah's bachelor thesis on ecocide. How are you today, Noah? I'm good, thank you. And thank you for letting me be a guest and a co-host. As Brom mentioned, I'm Noah van I'm Dutch and Australian. I graduated from Leiden University College in the Netherlands, majoring in international justice only last year. I'm now studying Dutch law. I wrote my bachelor thesis on ecocide. I specifically looked at the lessons we can learn from the crime of aggression at the International Criminal Court and how we could apply that to the current debate on a new crime of ecocide. For those who don't know, the crime of aggression was a crime which had a provisional status in the Rome Statute. The Rome Statute is a document which the International Criminal Court utilises to exercise its jurisdiction. So for the crime of aggression to become activated and become prosecutable, a definition had to be agreed upon. This took decades, however, uh, and it was only in 2018 that the jurisdiction on the crime of aggression was activated. This was 20 years after the Rome Statute entered into force. So basically, I figured we should always learn from history and look at the lessons learned there and apply it to discussions on adding a new crime to the Rome Statute, in this case, ecocide. As I mentioned before, we'll be talking about your thesis a little bit later, but maybe to start with, could you maybe tell me a little bit more about what is ecocide or give a very general definition for those who might not know? The concept that CEOs or state leaders could be held accountable for causing serious damage to the environment. So we're talking about, for example, uh, a man-made large-scale oil explosion into the ocean, which we saw in the Niger Delta in Nigeria, where a Dutch court ruled earlier this year uh, that Shell was responsible for the oil leaks, which actually led to a 95 million euro settlement uh, where Shell had to compensate the farmers affected. So with ecocide, basically, we're looking at criminal responsibility rather than a fine if it were implemented at the ICC. In this case, instead of there being the settlement, it would mean that the CEO would be held responsible and potentially even be put in jail. I think it's quite a funny story on how we actually got to know each other and how we discussed this topic for the first time because we were both in the same international criminal law course in semester one of uh, 2019 at LUC, and I specifically heard that you were going to write your thesis on ecocide and really talk about these questions that you just highlighted. It is a bit of a funny story, isn't it? And there's so much that has happened since we spoke. Uh, it's been two years now, actually. For example, a panel of experts uh, found a definition on the crime. France has tried to implement it into their national criminal code, and Chile is also trying to implement it into their constitution. That's only a couple of examples, but so much is happening. So now is a really good time to be discussing this, I think. To jump right into the topic then, 
How did you get interested in ecocide? So on Human Rights Day in 2018, I went to the Peace Palace in The Hague and there was an event in the main courtroom and there was a woman there with the name of Polly Higgins. She vouched for the idea of nature having rights and CEOs of corporations being held accountable for mass damage to the environment. So a way for this to be done, she said, was by modifying the Rome Statute of the ICC. What does the ICC do? The ICC holds individuals criminally accountable for only the most serious crimes of international concern. And after this, after this event at the ICC, I did my own research and I ended up writing my thesis on it. Which we'll talk about very briefly in a second. But I think before we go further into ecocide, we should maybe look a little bit about to the history and provide this kind of pivotal overview of these really important moments. And together we've identified five crucial turning points within the ecocide drafting history. So we're going to start with number one, which is going to be a clip from 1972. The immense destruction brought about by indiscriminate bombing, by large-scale use of bulldozers and herbicides, is an outrage, sometimes described as ecocide, which requires urgent international attention. The person you just heard speaking was Swedish Prime Minister Olof Palme in 1972, where in his opening statement for the Stockholm Convention, he used the word ecocide for the first time, and specifically used this as a term on the back of the Vietnam War. We really see this as the start of the codification movement. The second moment was on the back of this conference, Richard A. Falk in 1973, who created the first draft convention. Then there was a time where the term didn't really pick up much steam, so then the third main crucial point was that in 1985, Special Rapporteur Benjamin Whitaker, who led the Special Commission on the question of the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide, suggested that the definition of genocide should be broadened to include cultural genocide or ethnocide and also ecocide, adverse alterations often irreparable to the environment. I would say a key turning point was in 1987 when the International Law Commission proposed that ecocide should be added to the list of international crimes for the future ICC Rome Statute. However, sadly, this failed entirely as the crime was first changed to the willful and severe damage to the environment. Subsequently, as a result of that, it was unilaterally removed by the chairman of the ILC. So this then left the Rome Statute extremely limited for environmental crimes, with the only example remaining could be found in war crimes, specifically Article 8.2.B.4, the war crime of excessive incidental death, injury or damage, where it states that environmental damage would be a war crime specifically if it caused widespread, long-term and severe damage to the natural environment, specifically also excessive in relation to the concrete and direct overall military objective anticipated, which is of course a key importance of war crimes. The fifth turning point was in 2010 when the movement was resurrected by the hard work of lawyer Polly Higgins, who I mentioned before. She started the Stop Ecocide movement. Polly Higgins in 2010 argued that to fulfill the mandate of the ICC to prosecute crimes against peace, the crime of ecocide must be added as a fifth crime under Article 121 of the Rome Statute. 
Her book, Eradicating Ecocide, defines ecocide as the extensive destruction, damage to, or loss of ecosystems of a given territory, whether by human agency or by other causes, to such an extent that peaceful enjoyment by the inhabitants of that territory has been severely diminished. Sadly, she passed away in 2019, with a crime unfortunately not having been added yet to the ICC. But as Noah mentioned, there's been a lot of progress made in the last decade, and especially the last year. So the most recent and important development is this new proposed definition, created by the Independent Expert Panel for the Legal Definition of Ecocide, from the Stop Ecocide Foundation. This is really important, and we'll discuss this together with Professor Kevin John Heller right after the break. But before that, we've been hyping up your thesis so much, Noah, that could you maybe tell us a little bit more about it? I looked at ecocide from a procedural perspective, so not how it was defined, but rather what needs to be done. Um, So Kevin John Heller will look more into uh, the elements of the crime and how it should be defined, for example, Um, whereas I really looked at what do states need to do in order for this crime to be implemented. So in my research, I analysed a lot of historical documents um, which stated Uh, the opinions of countries regarding ecocide, and also a lot of legal arguments for and against uh, implementing the crime at some stage. From there, I found uh, the most important lessons we should learn uh, from the crime of aggression, and then how to implement that into the the debates on uh, ecocide. Could you maybe share some of these lessons with us? Of course. So firstly, I'd like to talk about the definition of a crime. It's extremely difficult to come up with a definition. Uh, You have to think about all the different elements to add. So, for example, do you add intent to a crime? Um, As well as that, the principle of legality. The definition has to be clear and it also has to be predictable. So this can take a long time and it did with the crime of aggression and it will likely also be the same with ecocide. Because of how important states are, is this political element also important to these types of definitions? Yeah, so the ICC relies upon state consent, uh, especially when there's a proposed amendment for the Rome Statute to add a crime. And this cannot be done without two thirds majority of states approving of it. So the official procedure of this is that a state has to make a formal proposal to the UN Secretary General. Uh, The UN Secretary General will then um, share the message with the rest of the states and there will be a vote as to whether the proposal will be taken up in the first place. This proposal has to be accepted by two-thirds majority of states. Then you have the second step, which is a two-thirds majority must then accept the amendment. So there's two stages where there has to be a two-thirds majority of states means that the ICC is completely dependent on states and whether they want to accept this amendment or not. Has there been an official amendment proposed? And who would actually be bound by such an amendment? So no, there hasn't been an official proposal as of yet. Vanuatu has raised the topic, but they haven't submitted uh, an official proposal to the UN Secretary General. So really, we're only in the beginning phase. And to address the second question, who would be bound by the new amendment? So it would never automatically bind all states. And this is because the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties says that 
a treaty cannot, uh, especially if a treaty has been amended, it cannot automatically bind states. So this would mean only the states that would actually sign or ratify, uh, in this case, ratify the amendment, those would be bound. And those who would not like to be bound would not be. So this would mean states that are uh, extremely responsible for what's happening right now with ecocide and environmental crime, they would likely still be able to get away with that because they would not be the ones ratifying it. So for the crime of aggression, it's the case that states can submit if they want to be bound by the crime of aggression or not. Um, and this is in a situation where the ICC prosecutor or the state refers the case. It's different when the United Nations Security Council refers the case to the ICC. To kind of wrap up this section then, do you have any final thoughts on what we can take from the crime of aggression and what you've learned in your thesis? So all in all, I would say it's important to distinguish between something that's achievable and something that's desirable. Practically, it would take a long period of time for state support and also to come up with a definition that states can agree upon. I don't necessarily think this should be a reason not to continue the movement. I do think we should be aware of it and I think we should take the lessons learned from the crime of aggression seriously to avoid failures from the past repeating again. Thank you very much. I think that with that we could move on to the next section with Kevin John Heller where we'll discuss the new IEP's definition for the crime of ecocide. So welcome back everyone to this second part. Noah and I are joined today by Kevin John Heller, professor at University of Copenhagen and Australian National University. He's written multiple books and co-edited the Oxford Handbook of International Criminal Law. He's been involved in all elements of international law, being involved with the ICC negotiations over the crime of aggression, human rights watch, legal advisor on the trial of Saddam Hussein, and amongst other things, most recently, he's been appointed to be Karim Khan's special advisor on international criminal law discourse. Thank you very much, Professor, for taking the time out of your day to join us here today. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm always happy to, to do things like this. And let me just say very quickly that I, I'm appearing only in my personal capacity. Nothing I, I say should be attributed to the Office of the Prosecutor or the court, because um, they probably wouldn't like that. Welcome to our guest, Dr. Kevin John Heller. Would you like to tell a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in ecocide? Well, that's a broad question. I could start with, you know, growing up in a little log cabin in Illinois, or uh, that's actually Abraham Lincoln, but um, his bio is much more interesting than mine. Um, maybe I'll just address the, the ecocide <laughs> question. Um, you know, I, it, it, I've certainly never been associated with kind of international environmental law. I, I didn't really study it. I, um, I didn't study international law really at all when I was, was kind of growing up. I was much more of a a criminal lawyer and a comparative criminal lawyer who kind of found his way to international criminal law. Um, but that said, I, you know, I think of myself as a strongly pro-environment person, uh, not a huge fan of capitalism, not a huge fan of development. Um, and, you know, it was always something that I kind of had in the back of my mind. Um, actually, quite early in my career, I wrote an article with uh, Jessica Lawrence, who is, I think she's a senior lecturer now at the University of Essex. Um, and we wrote on the war crime in the Rome Statute that deals with disproportionate attacks that affect the environment. And, and we actually wrote, you know, the title of the article was, 
Article 82B4, the first ecocentric war crime. Uh, and we talked about the advances of that war crime and some of the problems of that war crime. And that kind of got me thinking about the whole question, you know, not just of environmental damage and conflict, but, but environmental damage in general. And um, so uh, when ecocide kind of made its way back onto the agenda with the, with the new independent expert panel report, uh, you know, it was a good time to kind of dust off all of that knowledge. Um, the other aspect, I suppose, is I'm, you know, I'm working on a book right now with Sam Moyne on the Vietnam War and international law. Uh, and one of my chapters will be the chapter on kind of ecocide and the rise of environmental consciousness during the Vietnam War, because obviously there was a, a, a huge, <laughs> horrible environmental impact from American in intervention in Vietnam. So it, it, again, it's been these ideas have been swirling around in my mind for a while. I had never really bothered to get to, to writing on them. But then when the independent expert panel released its report, it kind of triggered uh, long dormant thoughts. Uh, and that's why it's kind of moved a little bit more to the center of the, the things I've been thinking about. Thank you. Yeah, I think that almost mirrors a lot of the drafting history of the crime almost where it started with that, of course, the Vietnam War and, and everything that's gone from there. I think that it's also cool that you mentioned now that with your criminal law background, because the way that we had almost seen this episode in this series was looking at this mix or this intersection of criminal law and international environmental law to see kind of this as the as a point at the top. The way that I tend to approach these things is, of course, I, I think about the politics and and the philosophy and the theory and all of the you know the broader context. But ultimately, what the independent expert panel has done is they have provided a definition of ecocide that they would like to incorporate into the Rome Statute as a criminal provision. So I tend to look first and foremost at these things through the lens of a criminal criminal lawyer and a comparative criminal lawyer, and I ask the question: Does it work? <laughs> is it defined correctly? You know, what are the issues? with the actus reus and the mens rea, and I know those are things that you want to get into, but I think it is really important to emphasize that insofar as you're talking about adopting a new crime, you are talking about the potential of putting people in jail for it. And although I have very little sympathy for people who destroy the environment, I have a great deal of sympathy for defendants and a, and a great reverence for the principle of legality and all of its associated principles. So I, I think it's essential not to just talk about you know, how awful it is to destroy the environment, we also have to talk about, well, what does the crime actually criminalize and does it do a good job of achieving its goals and, and will it treat potential defendants fairly? It shows that there's more to these kind of concepts than just on the one side activism and on the other side of the law. It's really mixing those two concepts. So to maybe springboard from that idea, I could briefly start to explain what the independent expert panel is and we can kind of go from there. So the Independent Excellent Panel in 2020 came together as a part of the Stop Ecocide Foundation, where they brought 12 lawyers from around the world with multiple different backgrounds to create, as you mentioned, this crime that could then be incorporated in the Rome Statute. Specifically, to quote what one of their aims was, was to create a practical and effective definition of the crime of ecocide. So I think that we can kind of use that as a measuring stick when we look at the crime and see if that's, that's been succeeded or if that was a little bit more difficult. So they brought out their definition in June 2021. So this is, of course, very recent. And the text specifically has two parts, looking at the, both the elements of the crime and then the actual crime they would be adding to the Rome Statute. The first part is the actual definition of the crime, and second one defines the different terms. So just to briefly say, because of course this is a podcast, 
the first part is that it says that for the purpose of the statute, ecocides means the unlawful or wanton acts committed with the knowledge that there is substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. Specifically, the key words then of wanton, severe, widespread, long-term, and the environment are then defined later on in the passage. Maybe we can then start here and ask for your general thoughts. What did you think about when it came out and kind of, yeah, what did you think of it? Well, I mean, kind of profound ambivalence. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm extraordinarily sympathetic to the desire to criminalize ecocide. I'm, I'm extraordinarily sympathetic to the, the desire to, you know, to in a variety of ways use the, the punitive power of the criminal law to punish those who, who harm the environment. So, you know, I, I, I applaud. <laughs> the IEP for doing all of this incredibly difficult work. And I and my criticisms should no in no way be be, you know, seen as some kind of, you know, claim that they were lazy or did, you know, like this is a really difficult topic. Um, and, you know, trying to get a whole bunch of people from very different backgrounds to agree on a criminal statute is not an easy thing. So I, I think we should applaud them for coming up with this definition. Um, I think there are some very strong aspects of the definition. Um, I love the fact that they have bothered to actually try to define the key terms. I mean, one of the kind of the, the, the criticisms uh, that actually that, that, that Jessica and I offered in our article of the war crime is that things like long-term, widespread, systematic, like they're not even defined in, in what is also a criminal provision. Um, they're not particularly well-defined even in general international law. So we owe them our thanks for actually offering what I think are extremely important and workable definitions. Um, I think it's a great thing that they decided to, to not go with the, you know, uh, systematic, widespread, and long-term conjunctively. Um, I think that that sets the bar too high. Um, so I like the fact that it has to be systematic, but either widespread or long-term. I think that's a really important innovation in the actus reus of, of the crime. Um, so there's many things that I applaud here, and I applaud the overall idea. When we get into the nitty-gritty of the definition, you know, I, I start to have problems with it. Um, I, I do think there are some really significant issues with the definition that they've offered. To go a little more in depth, could you summarize some of the main issues you have with the definition? To me, the big issue, um, and this is an issue not just of criminal law, but also of kind of broader you know, political and philosophic considerations, you know, is this distinction between unlawful acts and lawful acts. Um, if it's an unlawful act, obviously it only has to either cause or, or, or raise a risk or have a substantial risk of causing, you know, the, the requisite harm, the, the systematic or long-term and widespread uh, environmental damage. Um, so that's quite pure makes sense. <laughs> if it's an unlawful act, of course, you know, it should be easier to prove than a lawful act, perhaps. Um, but I have a real problem with the way that they have dealt with the lawful acts. And we all know that international environmental law doesn't criminalize <laughs> all that much. It's kind of a notoriously, you know, not, not soft, but kind of, you know, balancing of uh, various considerations. Um, they were smart in terms of also extending unlawful acts to those that are defined as illegal in national law. Um, and there will be some countries in which there are robust environmental protections, and there will be a lot of things that corporations and others could do that would run afoul of national law. But that's also relatively uncommon. You know, in the 
most countries in the world, and this is not a global south, global north thing, this is just everybody, environmental laws are really weak. Um, and criminalization of environmental damage is extremely spotty. So in practical terms, I think most of the acts that we are going to be really concerned about in terms of ecocide will be ones that are lawful uh, under both international and national law. And so that part of the definition becomes really, really important. And so my biggest problem with the crime is the kind of smuggling in through the back door of an anthropocentric perspective. You know, you explicitly have to balance the environmental harm, which again has to be either systematic, you know, has to be systematic and either long-term or widespread. And even if it is, even if it's the kind of environmental damage that we think should be criminal, we still then have to balance it against the, you know, benefit of the lawful act. Um, and to me, again, I can see a case even for the balancing, and perhaps we can come back to, you know, how I would approach this as a criminal matter. Um, but to me, that's not ecocide, <laughs> pure and simple. You know, it might be, you know, wanton and unjustifiable environmental damage. Um, but if you're explicitly saying that you can cause the requisite amount of environmental harm, as long as what you're doing really benefits humans enough, that's not ecocide to me. Um, might be a good idea, <laughs> but it's not ecocide. Um, and, I, you know, and I'm not even saying that ecocide has to be, you know, exactly like the mirror image of genocide. I mean, the idea that you would specifically intend to destroy the environment, it's not really a, we don't want to borrow the idea of genocide and put it into ecocide, even though they both come from, you know, the Latin word cadere. Um, but I don't see any coherent concept of ecocide that allows for a balancing of environmental harm against anthropocentric benefit. Um, and we could talk more about that, but we all know that in practice, the environmental harms will be minimized and the anthropocentric benefits will be maximized by everybody other than people like us. Um, so to me, that is not just a flaw of the statute, but it is a fatal flaw of the statute in terms of considering it any kind of coherent idea of genocide, uh, sorry, of ecocide. So then almost the, the mens rea of that just focuses way too much on what humans would do and allowing it. Well, that's not even mens rea. <laughs> I mean, I'm only, that's a whole nother, a whole nother story. I mean, this is just actus reus. At the actus reus level, there's a balancing of anthropocentric benefit versus ecological harm. And to me, that's just not acceptable. Then maybe before we move on to what a better definition could be or how we could try and implement it with less of an apocentric idea, what did you think of the mens rea for the crime and how it could be implied in that way? Well, here I just have a problem with the drafting. <laughs> I mean, this this isn't even so much a substantive problem, although it reflects substantive problems, but I just think it's so convolutedly drafted with all these multiple mens reas. There's at least two <laughs> and maybe three. Um, the biggest one, I th well, there, no, that's not fair. There's, there's two major problems, I think, with the mens rea. Um, the first is with regard to the systematic and either long-term or widespread environmental damage that there has to be knowledge of that. Um, but it's not really knowledge. <laughs> it, knowledge is defined then in the statute as essentially recklessness or dullus eventualis. Um, knowledge requires knowledge that is virtually certain that a consequence will come about. Uh, you know, recklessness and dullus eventualis, it's just there's different formulations, but it's basically just more likely than not, or likely, again, depending on the jurisdiction. Um, that's not knowledge. <laughs> and yet they use the term knowledge in the proposed definition. Um, and I think 
you know, again, I understand why they did that. <laughs> they did that because the drafters of the Rome Statute were extremely opposed to including dolus eventualis and recklessness into the statute. It's only there for superior responsibility and for recruitment of child soldiers. Um, they made a very conscious decision to exclude recklessness and dolus eventualis from the statute. You know, it's not in the default mens rea. Um, and so had they simply said recklessness or had they simply said dolus eventualis, it would have been pretty obvious that the statute was not going to be the kind of thing that would fit with the Rome statute. So they called it knowledge because the Rome statute uses knowledge and then they defined it in a way that isn't knowledge. That's a huge problem for me. Um, and then the other aspect is it isn't enough even just to balance the environmental harm against the benefit to humans. There also has to be awareness on the part of the perpetrator that the environmental damage was dis would be disproportionate to the anthropocentric benefit or the benefit to humans. And you know this is exactly the same kind of thing that, that Jessica and I criticized about the equivalent war crime which is if you actually are requiring the perpetrator to consciously decide, oh, you know, I'm going to destroy this forest and yeah, you know, it's going to cause way too much harm. I'm really not getting very much out of cutting the forest down, but all right, you know, screw it. I'll do it anyway. I mean, that's really what the mens rea actually requires. And that's not the way that they're going to think. Military commanders aren't going to think that way. And developers aren't going to think that way. They're going to delude themselves into thinking that, sure, we're cutting down a huge swath of the Amazon rainforest, but it's for a really good reason. Um, and if you're actually going to allow that to negate the mens rea of the crime, again, you're undermining, I think, fatally, the utility of the provision. So... I have problems with the actus reus, and I have problems with the mens rea, even though I'm, again, sympathetic to the underlying objectives. I suppose an interesting point to mention there as well is how could this knowledge even be proven in the first place? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, 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 I tried to write a long blog post about, you know, the, these kinds of issues. And, you know, it, what strikes me is that proving the perpetrator's mental state is going to be extremely difficult. Um, but even proving the actus reus will be really difficult. I mean, it, it's going to be, I mean, how do you kind of quantify the, the, you know, the anthropocentric benefit of a particular kind of development project? Um, you know, how do you really even quantify the environmental damage? Um, it's going to be a battle of experts, right? I mean, each side is going to have to introduce very, expensive, time-consuming witnesses um, to argue about these things. And the judges, who are themselves not trained you know, in science, most of them, they're going to have to make a judgment. Uh, so that's a problem as well. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, we, there's nothing unique about this crime in terms of um, you know, the difficulty of proving mens rea. I mean, we always we ask juries and judges to infer mental state from direct and circumstantial evidence all the time. Um, but I do think that there are some aspects of this particular mental state that will be extremely difficult. So again, you have problems with the actus reus in terms of proving it, and I think you're going to really struggle to actually prove the perpetrator's specific mens rea. If we look at the problems then with this definition, do you have any recommendations or thoughts for of your own on how you would try and define ecocide? Maybe to kind of fit in this effective and practical definition that they were trying to go for? No, it's a very good question. And, I, and it's something I've kind of agonized over because I, I, I like the idea of incorporating ecocide into the Rome Statute. Um, I like the idea of criminalizing environmental damage. 
I think we have to choose. Um, and here are our choices, I think. <laughs> um, we can have an ecocide crime on the books. Um, it won't work. <laughs> uh, states won't actually, um, you know, if, if they approve it, they won't ratify the necessary amendment. It won't actually have any practical purchase, but it will be there and it will have symbolic effect. If we're going to adopt ecocide and incorporate it into the Rome Statute, we need at least to have a symbolic affirmation of ecocide as it's traditionally understood. In other words, I would rather have a pure ecocide definition that will not lead to actual prosecutions than an impure definition of ecocide that also won't lead to, to prosecutions. You know, if we're going to adopt a, a crime, which in my view has no future in terms of actual prosecutions, at least we should maximize the symbolic value of that and, and really say it is unacceptable to cause this kind of harm to the environment. So that's kind of the we know no one's ever going to end up in jail for it, but at least it's really important to, to affirm its international illegality. The other choice is let's make something that is workable. <laughs> let's make something that actually has a chance of being adopted and lead to ratifications and eventually lead to actual prosecutions. If we want that, it's not going to be ecocide <laughs> um, in really kind of any form. Really what it would be is some kind of crime against humanity with an explicitly anthropocentric component that really does weigh the environmental damage against the, the damage or the benefits to humankind. Again, some kind of crime against humanity of, of you know, wanton environmental destruction. Um, that, I think, might have a future, um, but it's not ecocide, and, and we shouldn't call it ecocide. We should say that it is unacceptable to cause too much environmental damage when you are trying to do something that might be a legitimate development goal and criminalize that, in, again, in the adequately extreme situations. But we shouldn't call that ecocide because I think it dilutes the power of the idea of ecocide. Um, what we're doing essentially is just extending the war crime that is also problematic in some ways into peacetime and, and coming up with a peacetime equivalent of disproportionate damage to the environment during armed conflict. And I'm, and I'm all for that. I just, again, not, not to be too much of a nominalist, I, I don't want to call something that isn't ecocide, ecocide, um, particularly if we're not even going to get the benefits of actual prosecutions out of it. Based on what we've just discussed, do you actually think this could practically be implemented as a crime at the ICC in the Rome Statute, or maybe should we look at different avenues? I'm thinking national level, um, universal jurisdiction, potentially. Or should we stick to civil law? I don't think we have to choose. <laughs> um, you know, it's not an either or. I think we should, we should pursue as many avenues as humanly possible to punish people for harming the environment. Um, you know, to start with the first part of your question, which is the ICC, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. Um, you know, it is extremely difficult <laughs> to amend the Rome Statute. Um, even if you can get two-thirds of the state parties to agree on an amendment, and it's possible because we've done it with aggression, we've done it with, you know, various types of, you know, biological and chemical weapons, or maybe it's not both of them, but, you know, there have been successful amendments in the past. It's usually a long, slow process, so we shouldn't get too excited in the short term. But the real problem is what happens after the Assembly of States parties would approve amendments. Then it has to be ratified by member states. 
and no member state that doesn't ratify can be subject to the jurisdiction of the court. So, you know, that's the inevitable outcome of the fact that this would be a substantive amendment to the, you know, Article 5 through 8, just like the aggression amendments were. So basically, I, I just, I'm, I'm skeptical <laughs> that many states would ratify an amendment that could conceivably criminalize their development um, efforts. Um, and I think for a state that is deeply involved in ecological destruction, I find it inconceivable that they would make a choice to, to open themselves up to uh, potential prosecution. And, and, you know, and the problem is they can get all of the benefits of looking like good guys by approving the amendment itself and then just never get around to ratify it. So it's never actually subject, you know, they're never actually subject to it. We, we see that with aggression, <laughs> like the aggression amendments are going very, very slowly. And unless you think that, a, you know, a small Western European country is going to invade another small Western European country, none of the countries that are likely to commit aggression have signed up to it. And we would see the same thing, but even probably on a broader scale, because a lot more countries might involve themselves in projects that, that cause environmental damage than will invade their neighbors, right? So I think the fate of any ecocide amendment is even more dismal than the fate of the aggression amendments. So that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, that because there is no real practical avenue at the ICC to make the, 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 the perpetrators that we want subject to this crime actually subject to this crime, we at least should have a, a pure definition that, that gets the symbolic value of criminalizing ecocide. Um, so I don't see the ICC as the the, the, the be-all and end-all of efforts to combat ecocide. But as you said, it's not our only choice. And, and even if we do go down the ICC route, we should never forget the other routes. And, you know, and this is kind of one of my pet peeves, that the ICC tends to suck all of the oxygen out of the room. It's always seen as like the first and essentially last resort for the world's problems. And it doesn't have the capacity or the will uh, by member states to do that. Um, so, you know, instead of obsessing completely about the ICC, again, putting some attention to it is definitely a good idea, but we should be thinking about all of the other ways that we can push this agenda along. We should think about encouraging states to uh, incorporate a, a definition of ecocide into their national criminal law. And, you know, the, and to be fair, the IEP, they're pushing for this as well. They're, they're not just focused on the ICC, but we should be pushing for national prosecutions. We should, of course, keep our eyes open for, you know, civil litigation um, and ways to, to hold, you know, polluters to account. And we've seen, you know, landmark judicial decisions in the Netherlands. <laughs> um, you know, we have a, a, could be a potentially landmark case before the European Court of Human Rights, you know, on behalf of a bunch of children whose world is being busily destroyed by a bunch of countries who don't care. Um, you know, that's also incredibly important litigation. And, and I my gut says that that's much more likely to succeed than almost any of the criminal avenues. Um, so we need to have our fingers in as many pies as humanly possible if we care about environmental damage. And, and again, it doesn't mean ignore any of them, but it means keep them all alive and just see over time what works. Um, but I think we're going to find that national approaches are going to be much more likely to result in, in real concrete effects than uh, anything at the international level uh, at the, or at the, much less at the ICC. Moving on from that, 
Those who are part of the movement for ecocide argue that criminal law is the more suitable avenue rather than civil law. They argue the threat of jail rather than a fine is more likely to deter an individual from committing the crime again. I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a very difficult question to answer. Um, you know, in the abstract, <laughs> the threat of actually going to jail <laughs> is probably more of a deterrent, particularly to a corporate official, than the prospect of being made to pay a fine, which will almost certainly be, you know, pocket change for the Shells and, and Mobiles and Exxons of the world or the Adanis of the world, right? Um, so, of course, if you could have a functioning criminal you know, uh, provision at the ICC or in national criminal codes, whatever, of course we would find more deterrence from that. But deterrence isn't just a question of what the punishment is. It's also a question of what is the likelihood of punishment. It's like, yes, you may get your head chopped off if you do something, but if the chances of you ever being convicted of that crime are 0.0001, it doesn't matter how severe the punishment is, you're not going to be afraid of it. So we have to balance our desire for criminal prosecution and the deterrence that comes with it against the likelihood that a criminal prosecution will succeed. And again, at least now, <laughs> it is unlikely that in the near future there will be any credible threat of criminal prosecution. So there will be no essentially, essentially no deterrent value to ecocide. Um, so at this point in time, the threat of civil litigation might actually be a much greater deterrent, you know, if, if only because corporations don't like to be made to look really bad on the international stage. You know, again, no court in the world is going to, to um, find Chevron enough for what it did, you know, in Lago Agrio. And we know about the 20 years of that litigation. Um, but even if, it, you know, um, I think the civil law has more deterrent value now until we can really develop criminal um, criminal mechanisms to deal with it. So again, we need. this is what I mean about, about paying attention to the detail. Because <laughs> most people just say, oh, of course going to jail is more of a deterrent than a fine. Yeah, it is, if there's a credible threat of going to jail. If there's no credible threat, the fine might actually be more of a deterrent. Interesting, thank you very much. Then maybe having thought about all these different mechanisms and different aspects of ecocide, for our final thoughts, do you think that we should move forward with ecocide as this this flagpole of environmental crimes? Yes and no. <laughs> um, again, I think there really is something powerfully symbolic about the idea of ecocide. Um, and I don't want to lose that. You know, I, I don't want to lose the message that comes from saying you're not allowed to destroy the environment. Um, the definition that we've been given by the IEP, to me, doesn't send the right message. We, we need to send the message that it doesn't matter how valuable you think it is to human beings. Nature and the environment are ends in themselves, and you're not allowed to cause systematic and either long-term or widespread damage to it. You know, and, and yes, we know that it's not going to change behavior overnight. We know that countries are not going to stop, you know, um, what they perceive as incredibly important development projects. But again, we have to have a message that is uncompromising. We can't, right out of the gates, <laughs> dilute the message by saying, don't harm the environment unless you have a really good reason for humans to do it. Um, that, to me, is just unacceptable. So I, I prefer to kind of keep alive this normative ideal 
of Ikasai, the one that we get from Polly Higgins, right? The it's Stop Ikasai Project, right? Um, we need to keep that alive. And then below that, we need to be pluralists. We need to think about, okay, well, how can we actually operationalize this? Do we need a different type of crime for the Rome Statute? Do we want to push a, a pure definition of the crime for states under perhaps universal jurisdiction? You know, do we want to multiply our civil litigation um, avenues? That's what we should do. Um, so yes, keep ecocide alive because I think it galvanizes people and activism in a way that, that all the other things that we've talked about don't. But also be aware that our concept of ecocide, our pure concept of ecocide, is probably not something that could ever be the basis for a functional crime and that we're going to have to make compromises at the level of, of praxis. Well, thank you very much, Professor. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the podcast. Next week, part two of the Ecocide series will go live, where we discuss the topic of for who are we creating Ecocide? Lastly, I would like to thank Noah for co-hosting this episode with me, Professor Kevin John Heller for all his time and effort, and Fedor Tuchenko from the Plutocrats for all the music you hear in this episode. Thank you everyone for listening and talk to you guys soon.